0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. After an upstate New York childhood and a bartending stint in New Orleans' French Quarter, seasonal resort work led Ari Barillo to the desert southwest, whose red rock landscapes were a source of stability through mental and physical illness. In his new book, The Backwoods of Everywhere, archaeologist Barillo excavates his past, examining indigenous and tourist cultures, the complexities of American archaeology, and what it means to be a local Ari Burillo is an archaeologist and conservation advocate. He's author of um, Behind the Bears Ears, Exploring the Cultural and Natural Histories of a Sacred Landscape, winner of the Forward Indies Editor's Choice Prize. His writing has appeared in Archaeology Southwest, Colorado Plateau Advocate, and Salt Lake Tribune and elsewhere. Lives in southern Arizona where he works as special manager for, uh, project manager rather, for Paleo West. Um, Ari Burillo, welcome to the program. Hi,
1: good morning. Thanks for
0: having me. Good, good morning. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's correct.
1: That's oh. um, My my ancestry is uh, is Italian. Ever since ah. I moved to the southwest, it's pronounced Burillo, and I'm getting <laughs> used to that. <laughs> there but, you go.
0: Uh either works. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, it, it depends. So, yeah, that is the Italian pronunciation, right, Burillo. Um, I'll mention here at the beginning, I'll mention throughout the hour as well, that uh, Ari Burrillo will be headlining the following events. Uh, So this Friday at 7.30 p.m., the book Bungalow in St. George. Saturday uh, at 7 p.m. at Ken Sanders at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City. And then the following week, Saturday, July 30th, 7.30 p.m. at the Robert's Roost in Torrey. That one presented by the Entrada Institute. So opportunities for you to interact with uh, Ari Burillo about his uh, new book, um, which is The Backwoods of, of Everywhere. Um, so you were born and raised in Upstate New York. Understand what? Uh, where about?
1: I'm from uh, originally. I'm from the the Binghamton area, so just south of Syracuse, right near the uh, right near the Pennsylvania border.
0: Then, as um, as a teenager, you went to New Orleans. Why? Why New Orleans?
1: About as concisely as I can put it, it was as far away both geographically and culturally, as I could get from where I grew up without actually leaving the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, it seems like it would be. Did you find it so? I did, indeed.
1: Yeah. I uh, Boy, it was culture shock, really. I, the weather, obviously, is is, is quite different, but uh, the, the diversity of, of individuals, culture, music, food, everything... Um, architecture, you name it; it's it's just it's night and day.
0: But you, I am skipping ahead a little bit here in the in the story. We'll loop back um, at a certain point. You f- you found um, that. Uh, no, I am not a local in New Orleans, right? Uh, although there were some things that fit, and in fact, when you went back to Upstate New York, you you found. I, I don't think I am a local here either. Yeah, I
1: never. I never quite articulated with the the local uh culture, so to speak it's you know in new england it's it's a it's a mixed bag like like all places are are mixed bags you know you never want to be you never want to paint with too broad a brush you know you don't want to be too essentialist but just sort of generally speaking there's a a heady stream of of puritanism that runs through the northeast and then there's a an equally heady counterculture. So it's the place where you find, you know, a tremendous amount of that uh, sort of leftover pilgrim work ethic on one side of the street and the sort of uh, angry opposite of that, the, you know, the Woodstock culture on the other side of the street. And I never really sat well with either of them.
0: Um, you, I'm just going to read this um, from the book. This is Ari Burillo. Um, you say, you can't be a local everywhere. Um, it'll occasionally take a long time, a lifetime even, to find one's true home. Then you go on to say, anyway, what does being local even mean? I've spent long hours obsessing over this question. So do you have to be born there? Do you have to love the place? Does the place have to love you back? Um, as we get into that discussion about local, which you know, it's a thread that runs through the, the whole book, wh- what does it mean to be local? You know, I'm honestly still trying to figure that out. Uh, it's because so often
1: it's – it's as a word, it becomes um, more of a tool when when people if, – if someone self-identifies as a tool or as a local, quite often they're doing it in a way as to uh, set up an opposition. You know, I'm a local here as opposed to these newcomers, or I'm a local here as opposed to these tourists, or – you know what I mean? It's an oppositional – uh, or a contrasting position, as far as its actual definition, I've been chasing it for years, and uh, the closest I can come is when you and a place feel really comfortable with each other, like you, you know what I mean. Like you wear it like a glove. Mm.
0: Yeah that that seems to that seems to fit. No pun intended, I guess, um, <laughs> <clears throat> or maybe intended at this point. So yeah that oppositional uh, thing resonates. Uh here I don't know about Arizona here in in Utah it's 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 often set up as uh, those Californians uh coming in. We're local, right? They don't understand.
1: Yeah, and that's well and I I I did my graduate school program there. I've actually at this point I've lived in Utah uh more than I've lived in Arizona for at least for the past decade or so. Um and yeah, and I remember seeing it there. I remember uh when I was in Colorado that oppositional uh position especially in the mountain towns was it was Texas, you know, these rich people from Texas come here and buy these houses, they don't understand the local culture, they they don't know the local animals and so on, they, you know, we're better. And yeah, and I don't I don't really like how the term is used. I think it to a certain extent and not to be hyperbolic, I think it's been weaponized. Mhm.
0: Yeah, you write about that, and I mean, we all resonate with that. We've all seen examples and experienced examples of, of that, often environmental fights, right? The um, Ironically, the uh, big conglomerate comes in and says we're serving the locals, especially we're going to improve the local economy.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's, you know, I touch on that a little bit in the book. I remember it in, in southeast Utah, the... Uh, the fights, the ongoing fights over the White uh, White Mesa uranium mill, where, you know, we're we're looking out for the locals. We care about the locals. We only think about the locals. And it's a company based in Canada that, I mean, after securing uh, the continuation of their contract through the Trump administration, turned around and laid off a third of their workforce just because profits weren't high enough. Like, they don't, I mean, they don't care about locals. It's just a word. It's a word they use. Mm -hmm. I've seen the same thing in northern Arizona. You know these uh there's an ongoing fight over the use of reclaimed water in northern arizona because as a result of numerous factors the climate change being the primary one the snowpack is going away so it's difficult to have things like a ski resort in arizona obviously and so there's this ongoing battle over the use of reclaimed water to make uh snow on these peaks that are sacred to indigenous people and the, the The pro snowmaking argument is always local. It's local jobs, local culture, local this and local that. It's owned by a conglomerate out of Colorado, Hmm. and most of the people who go there, most of that money changes hands. It's people from Phoenix, from Southern Arizona, just using the place for the weekend. Hmm. It's all—it's smoke and mirrors.
0: It can be a powerful. I mean, it's proved to be a powerful argument um, that you know that that seems to work, at least uh, you know when you go to the legislature and such local, even though the company is owned in, like you say, in Canada or Colorado. Yeah, it is. And that's, and, and that's
1: really, that's an unfortunate uh, reality of, of well, just, just human beings. I mean, the fact is you can't blame, I don't think you can blame the average person for hearing a message like that and, and thinking, you know, at least someone's looking out for me. At least mm-hmm. someone's thinking about, of me. Mm-hmm whether it's genuine or not that's that's a follow-up question i think more people need to ask but i do understand the appeal mm. because so often people feel forgotten especially in our society and it's it's pretty easy to tap into that
0: well as we've seen uh, you know mr trump certainly tapped into he he called the you know, the forgotten the forgotten men right
1: <laughs> yeah right and they you know refer to uh, the uh, middle america essentially as flyover states and, you know, that's, it's the, the coasts only care about each other and so on and so forth. And, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it, it's something that's—I'm not going to say it's easy to tap into, um, but it's easy to utilize once you've tapped
0: into it. Mm-hmm. By the way, reclaimed water, uh, <laughs> uh, that's a euphemism, right? It is. It's an, it's a, an official euphemism. Um, it's
1: the— treated uh treated wastewater or effluent um in this particular case from the from the city of flagstaff to make uh to make fake snow for you know for this the ski resort and i should say some of the science looks pretty confident uh i haven't uh, you know i i don't do that sort of science so re- reading some of these reports it it really does in some cases it seems like it's perfectly safe it's not bad for the environment um, but the water is totally treated I've, I've read other studies that contradict that so I'm not really sure where I land but we are in a drought and it's the worst one in about 1200 years so my question is if you know if if doing this practice is unsafe for the environment we shouldn't do it if the practice is totally safe should we be wasting the water like I don't see how it benefits us in either in either side, but anyway. Mm.
0: Um, by the way, in, in that particular fight, um, as you write about this, indigenous uh, people were were opposed, I guess for a whole range of reasons, to this ski resort, you know, reclaimed water. Yeah, and I should clarify um, because that raises a good point. It
1: not, you know, I don't, I don't want to. Again, paint with too broad a brush. Um, I've I've met and spoken to Indigenous individuals and uh, in their entire communities who are not opposed to it. That they they see the benefits outweighing, um, you know, outweighing the detriments. They're outnumbered, as far as I can see, vastly outnumbered. Uh, but it is you know it is true that it, we we can't say you know it just didn't. Sort of big, bold words, indigenous people oppose the following. That's, you know, they're they're people, they've got their own individual agency. And it's the same with the Bears Ears fight. I've talked to indigenous people who think that the monument's a horrible idea. But in general, um, statistically speaking, it's mostly, it seems that uh, numerically that indigenous groups, and especially indigenous activist groups, are lined up firmly against the existence of the ski Resort, and especially of using reclaimed water. Mm-hmm.
0: So similar with Bears Ears, uh, the majority of indigenous uh, people in favor, some opposed?
1: Uh, based on, on, on just my limited uh, personal experience, the groups that I've worked with, people I've talked to, um, I would say yes. There's officially, in the case of Bears Ears, I'm not sure what the numbers are in the case of Snowbowl, but in Bears Ears, officially there are five tribes, the Zuni, the uh, uh, Hopi, Navajo Nation, the UNT URA Ute, and the Ute Mountain Ute. But unofficially, or well, I guess this is officially, but by an extension of that, they represent, last I checked, about 26 different tribes who simply don't have the money or the resources to be on the forefront of that fight, but have, you know, have signed off and said, you guys represent us too. So it's a huge consortium. And the voices that I've seen oppose it one or two chapter houses, uh, a number of LDS individuals in and around the Anath community, and not not many, not a lot. So they're there, but it seems like the numbers are pretty strongly on the pro side in that case.
0: Mm. Let's take a break. Uh, we have much more to talk about with Ari Burillo. His new book is called The Backwoods of Everywhere, Words from a Wandering Local. So that subtitle, Ari Burillo, um, you consider yourself a local.
1: <laughs> uh this is the second time I get to answer this question. It's it's a fun one. Um I didn't choose the subtitle. Ah. It okay. was uh it was my publisher because I chose the primary title. It's a, a kind of a tongue in cheek reference to both Bears Ears and to uh the United States. How I feel about that, but they, having read the book, um, I don't remember if it was my editor in chief or if it was the technical editor, came back and said, "Well, this is a good way to characterize what he's talking about." And I hemmed and hawed over it for a minute, and I finally decided they were right. It's a great, it's a great conversation starter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which you want, right? <laughs> so um, exactly, yeah. Um, so the Backwoods of Everywhere is the book it's out from Tory House Press and uh, let me mention as we go to break here that Ari Burlow will be uh, headlining the following events uh, Friday 7.30pm the book bungalow at, in St. George Saturday 7pm at Ken Sanders at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City and then Saturday July 30th 7.30pm at the Robert's Roost uh, in Tory, presented by the Entrada Institute we'll have more following this <music> You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer Ari Barillo. His new book is The Backwoods of Everywhere. Subtitle is Words from a Wandering Local. The book is out from uh, Torrey House Press. And uh, you can interact with uh, Ari Burillo uh, at the following events. Uh, Friday, 7.30 p.m., the book Bungalow in St. George. Saturday, 7 p.m., Ken Sanders at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City. And then Saturday, July 30th. Uh, 7.30 p.m. at the Robert's Roost in Torrey, presented by the Entrada Institute. So Ari burlow uh, um, yeah, go ahead. Hey, uh, yeah, sorry. Before we go on, actually, I need to clarify something
1: um, that, mm-hmm. that only popped up just recently. Ah. Uh, and I apologize for that, but the actually the Ken Sanders, uh, the Leonardo event in Salt Lake City has been uh, paused as ah. a result of the the newly spiking COVID-19 cases. So it will be taking place, but it's actually uh, it's going to be delayed to a later date. Okay. The others are still on.
0: Okay, thanks for that note. And, uh, yeah, sorry to hear about that. I, kn- I know cases are just spiking. It's,
1: uh, it's, 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 it's insane. Yeah, yeah, where I live right now in Maricopa County, it's, it's almost as bad as it was in March 2020. Mm-hmm. It's, it's frankly unbelievable. Uh,
0: and yet our response is very different. It's almost as if we're all done and they're just kind of ignoring it. I don't know how it is in Maricopa County.
1: Uh, largely, yeah, largely. it's. And and I think that might be for uh, a lot of us, especially in a position where you're interacting with the public, it's, it's quite frustrating um, to see that people just shrug and go, yeah, we don't care about that. It's old news. And it's old news that's still killing people. You know, I want people to... To really, uh, you know, bear that in mind, but more and more, they're just not.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, duly noted, and then hopefully um, that'll be rescheduled, and uh, we'll we'll get the word out once it is uh, rescheduled. Uh, so we're talking about what it means to be local. You also talk about, and it's important to bring this up when you talk about local. You talk about what it means to be indigenous. What what's that's different, of course. What uh, what does it mean to be indigenous?
1: Indigenous, uh, at least from an anthropological perspective, um, uh, with regard specifically to—well, not specifically, in fact, to human beings, um, but just more in general terms, biological and behavioral terms, it's indigenous is the state in which the individual or the organism and the environment uh, have actually shaped each other. And— it's it often takes a long time, and at the, the level of the species, it can take thousands or even millions of years. Uh, at the level of the of the subspecies, or at the level of the local community, um, you know, the human level, it can take uh, dozens or hundreds of generations. But it's a matter of you know you and the environment syncing uh, or being so closely articulated that that. You, you have, to a, a very noticeable degree, actually shaped one another. And some of the examples I mentioned um, include individuals living in the Andes in South America or people, you know, the Sherpa cultures living uh, way up on the Tibetan Plateau have enlarged lungs. They have much higher density of hemoglobin in their blood. That allows them to live in a place that's so high where the air is so thin I don't have either of those things, so whether or not I like the place, I'm I, even if I live there, I feel comfortable enough to call myself local. I'll never be indigenous because the landscape just hasn't shaped me that way. Mm.
0: You give an example that really resonated with me about uh, bears. The, the, all all bears are, you know, you could say they're immigrants. You know, many, many, many years ago, uh, but you know, a, a polar bear in the Rocky Mountains wouldn't work, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, and it's it, exactly and and you know when as a result of, of uh, the changes to the global climate system, local environments, and so on, those those adaptations, those niche adaptations, have been continued to operate. But it also it also touches on something that that just drives me crazy. And you know earlier we were talking about the use of use of terms like local as a tool or even as a weapon um, in in especially political or business discourse. And this idea that, you know, everyone's an immigrant. Everyone, everyone migrated from somewhere. And even if we believe this, the latest science, and I believe the latest science, that our species seems to have originated uh, in Africa, in the Pleistocene. And therefore, everybody's a new arrival somewhere. We don't need to listen to these indigenous voices. You know, they just happen to get here earlier. And it's it's bunk. It's it totally flies in the face of the evidence, which is that you know certain communities that have lived someplace so long, and have articulated so closely with the local environment that the two of them are, are uh, intertwined in a way that more relative newcomers just just can't even touch. And so it absolutely counts. And you know, it's and it's frustrating to see this uh, this dialogue running. Where, you know, people will say things like, I read in a magazine that, that Native Americans arrived here only 12 or 13,000 years ago, so they're new arrivals too, so why should we listen to them? Well, because they've been here long enough, even if that's true, and I'm not certain that it is, but in any case, they've been here long enough that they and the environment reflect one another. And so it absolutely counts, and I you know I get frustrated when people use that uh, as an argument to cast those those sorts of, of perspectives aside.
0: I want to read uh, just a little bit here uh, from your book, Ari e. Burillo, The Backwoods of Everywhere. So, uh, quoting Ari e. Burillo conceived as a spectrum, indigenous would be uh, way out in the opposite end from tourist, settler, uh, from tourist. Settler or co- uh, colonists would be nearer tourist end, local would fall a bit nearer indigenous end. And you say, right in the middle uh, would be where I am, most of the time, simultaneously home and lost. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs>
1: Uh, I have, a, I have an, unfortunately, a, a, an unsettled spirit, I think. Um, I, when I was living in Zion National Park, working as a, a restaurant employee, this was before I even you know, went back to school for, for archaeology, uh, I was there, and my roommate was this fellow, Dave, who was from South Carolina, and we were just questioning each other, and how did we end up here? In the bottom of a canyon in, in southern utah and he said well i think we're both we both got bit by uh I mean, we both got bit by the same bug and forever feel like we're especially in places like the canyons of, of the colorado plateau feel like we're in love with where we're at and feel like we we were happy to be there and we fit to a point but this this constant you know insecure nagging like do I really fit here and I don't know if it's psychological uh, or if it's it's something sort of more I don't know more rooted in, in culture especially in a like a, a settler colonial country as ours indeed is um, I'm inclined to think it's just us <laughs> but I've never yeah I don't think I've ever Found a place and said, "Well, this is it." And I'm not sure I ever will, honestly. Mm-hmm.
0: Why do you think that? Is? I guess that's that's you. That's your personality.
1: I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think and and you know, growing up the way I did, um, uh, feeling just feeling out of out of sorts and out of place, the place where I where I was again. You know, I didn't I didn't really mesh or feel super comfortable with the uh, the the local culture where I grew up and. You know the the things. ford was wrong about a lot, but he he got a few things right. And the things that happened to us in our in our extreme childhood tend to leave uh, imprints or or lessons that things that are hard to rub out over the rest of your life. And I think that feeling unsettled and you know I don't belong here. Where do I belong? Do I belong over there? Let's go around this corner. Let's see what's up this tree. Uh, that was just there was seed that was planted so young. I think it's just still there.
0: You you write uh, this is kind of just in passing. It, it struck me. You says it seems like every locality has its own special form of initiation ritual. Uh, anything? Any example come to mind?
1: Yeah, the one. Well, the one that I used in the in the book was really extreme, and I did that mostly for entertainment value. But um, I think you know when I moved to uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, it's an intensely outdoor loving and intensely frankly beer loving culture and it took me a few years to really feel like uh like I was accepted in the sort of the, the downtown flagstaff scene and a lot of that had to do with uh sort of broadcasting the fact that I too like to go hiking and I'm not averse to a mountain bike and I'll never say no to an IPA and It, you know, and that was essentially it was like the gauntlet I had to get through before they said, okay, he fits. He's, you know, he's, here he is. He's, he's one of us now. Whereas by contrast, um, when I was living in, in New Orleans, it's not, at least where I was living, now it's a, it's a diverse place. But the sort of the downtown, you know, the French Quarter scene, it has this very, like, we don't care about fitness so much. We don't care about, you know, uh, uh, living a healthy lifestyle—that sort of thing. What we care about is is shutting the bar down, having you know, enjoying eating rich food and a more, you know, le le bon temps roulé, like more enjoy the moment of the life and and not, I don't know, not so much obsessed with uh, with, with with like fitness and longevity and so on. And I've heard it gets really extreme when you get to places like you know, San Diego and, and some of these other, uh, you know, some of these other locations where it's like you, if you don't jog every single morning, they look at you and go, well, what are you doing here? Um, so something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That resonates as well. Uh, I guess every place has that, right. Um, and it is, as you said before, um, it's, uh, do you fit the place and does the fit place fit you? It's, I guess it's both yeah exactly exactly um so you went to, from new orleans you uh you got into i guess you was seasonal work right or in national parks you did that that brought you west did it
1: yeah that was um uh that was the 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 springboard the catalyst uh the push the kick i'm not sure what the word there would be but um living in New Orleans and just really starting to feel super unsettled there. Uh, for reasons I touch on in, in that particular book. I was introduced to the, uh, the the seasonal, I guess I should put this in quotes, the adventure lifestyle uh, by a friend of mine, a friend of my roommate who had spent 10 years essentially living out of a backpack, and showed me, uh, you know, it's it's remarkably easy, so easy in fact, that I can't believe more people don't do it, but just, you know, go. There's websites you can go to. You find a job you know, working for guest services in a lodge in Glacier National Park, which is what I did, or you end up working, you know, a bartender or a porter a place in Yellowstone or a ski resort, and you show up, and they say, here's where you work, that's where you sleep, here's the employee dining room, try not to show up too hungover to work, and that's that. Like, that's, you know, and then you live at the Grand Canyon. And I thought, okay, I'll I'll get away. A lot of folks do this, college kids, it turns out, do this, you know, just for the summer. And I thought, you know, I'll get away, I'll go, and I'll spend a summer in Glacier National Park. I've never been west, never been to the mountains, I've never seen a grizzly bear. And I'll save some money, and then maybe I'll go back to school in New Orleans. And boy, did that not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it became, I've known people who have been living that lifestyle now for like over 20 years. It becomes quite addictive. Like, once you realize just how easy it is, now you have to give up things like having a permanent address unless you're privileged enough to own a house at home that somebody else is looking after, which, of course, I don't. Uh, It's tough to have a pet, et cetera, et cetera, because you're living in employee housing. But, again, you show up at these places that are astonishing, that, you know, people save money for years to go to the Grand Canyon. And, you know, you show up and they say, here's your bedding, and, you know, this is when meals are served and uh, try to look presentable when you're working in the restaurant, and that's your life, and you're there every single day. And, boy, does it, you get hooked on it. So I, you know, when I arrived and by the end of the, um, uh, when I arrived at the end of that first season in Glacier, I thought, well, that's that. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going back to a normal life. And from there, I, you know, I found another gig Just went straight to a a ski resort in Colorado. From there to New Mexico, to Old Mexico, Texas, Alaska, Vermont, Oregon, and ultimately Arizona and Utah. And that's where I got really into um, uh, Colorado Plateau history and cultures and ended up doing what I'm doing now.
0: You write about um, taking a train to Big Bend. Um, I'm just going to read this. Visions of sand and cactus and sun-bleached cow skulls dancing in my head and was subsequently struck, as everyone always is, by how arrestingly verdant the desert really is. True, the plants will all try to stab you, you say. <laughs> but um, and some people respond, you know, others don't. You're one of those that responded to this. Why, why do you think that is?
1: I mean, you know, I'm not certain about that either. And that's another question that I've been, that's been rattling around in my head for, I guess now, for about 16, no, 17 years. Is uh, you know why it is that um, when I when I found this this place this the the Southwest it, it resonated with me so well coming as I do from upstate New York coming as I do from uh, mixed ancestry like all Europeans but seemingly mostly Italian mostly northern uh, northern European Irish you know there's certainly no desert culture and I, not that I believe in you know genetic determinism anyway i think it's bunk but but for some reason it just it really really touched me i think uh i've I've struggled with depression off and on during my life and i know that that increased levels of sunshine do wonderful things for people in terms of vitamin d as long as you don't get too much sunshine so that might be a factor uh the searness the harshness of it the big open spaces that make me feel comfortable Uh, I think a lot of us, it really, especially coming from places that are very crowded. You know, upstate New York is not like New York, New York, where the buildings, you know, shoulder up against each other. But it's still still the east. There are no, really, there are no public lands until you get out to these states. There's a few state parks here and there. But there aren't these big open spaces of, of Forest Service, BLM, et cetera, until you get out here and I think that's you know that's a big factor as well and in terms of uh, outside of, of the the density of the, the the plants the variety of the the plants and animals that I saw that were so fascinating to me just this idea that there's these open spaces and you can go and you can explore them and no one's going to stop you I think was a huge factor
0: I want to follow up with that public lands I guess you know you grew up in the west and I speak for myself. Having grown up in the West, uh, you know, public lands to me to me means politics. You know, and the, the endless fight over it. Um, but, you know, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy getting out. I guess it's I take it for granted. Uh, coming from the East, I guess you you don't. You this, uh, this public lands, you can get out in, into them.
1: Yeah, and that's it's it's a a tricky. It's a tricky topic to, to, to really approach concisely because there are, there are so many tendrils, obviously, but just as a, a sort of a broad-spectrum uh, compare and contrast, I would say folks that I know, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, I know another fellow that's actually from the same area I am, uh, who works as an archaeologist at Petrified Forest. For us, coming coming from the east and especially from the northeast, we do when we see public lands, we don't see politics until we get really into it, and so we start reading books and start talking to to activists and you know listening to especially listening to talking heads on on uh, television or on the internet. What we see instead is something that's that just vastly contrasts with what we're used to, where, you know, all the land for the most part, all, all of the land is either it's either some uh, interdiction-heavy managed piece of property by, like I said, the state, or maybe there's a tiny little national park, uh, or it's private. And that's everything. It's it's all locked up. And, you know, going exploring, uh, one of my, my best friends and I, when we were children, we would go on these long, long wandering adventures through the woods, and... Half of the excitement was, you know, we're exploring, there's creeks, there's trees, we occasionally stumble upon an old colonial cemetery or something. The other half of the excitement was just knowing that, you know, every hour or so we're like crossing a fence into yet another piece of public pro- or private property and, you know, our dog's going to come get us or whatever, you know. It was never, never for a moment did it escape our attention that unless we were on a big track of state land, we were on somebody else's property. And when you get to the public land states, that goes away.
0: How, how does that affect you? Do you? How did it affect you? You've talked a little bit about that. I wonder if you expand. Uh, it was
1: profound. It was, you know, it was really, I guess the, of all the, the many impressions that it left on me, I'll just, I'll pick one and that is that uh, it, it made me feel, I don't know, it made me feel less trapped as an individual, but then, you know, thinking in terms of my my society, my culture, you know, the 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 greater community uh, that I'm part of and that we're all part of, it was nice to see this was even possible that this could still happen. You know, I remember reading uh, uh, Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson, where he has a conversation with a fellow, and you know, they're talking about whether or not the Appalachian Trail is getting crowded and you know, by by American Davy Crockett, I can see my neighbor a mile off. He's too close. Sort of standards. Sure, you can argue that it is from European standards. It's absolutely not. You know, there it's it's so densely developed over there that, you know, it, to get lost for days and especially for weeks in wilderness is just essentially a non-starter. At least in most of you know developed Europe. And. And that conversation resonated with me because when I arrived in the West, and especially when I was in Alaska, you know, seeing these big, vast, wide open pieces of public land, it just it, it made me think, wow, you know, we're not we're not crowded shoulder to shoulder. We can have these places. We can we can still have uh, we can still have and preserve big big pieces of wilderness. Whether we do, uh, whether we treat it the right way, manage it the right way, whether we appreciate it enough, all those are, are thorny follow-up questions, but it's, nonetheless, it's, it's it's heartwarming to see that it's possible and that we, you know, that we are doing it, because you don't see that where it comes from. Hmm.
0: Let's take another break. We're talking with Ari Barillo. His latest book out now is The Backwoods of Everywhere, uh, Words from a Wandering Local. It's out from Torrey House Press. And uh, he'll be headlining uh, an event on Friday at the Book Bungalow in St. George. And then the uh, uh, following week, Saturday, July 30th, 7:30 p.m. at Robber's Roost in Torrey, presented by the Entrada Institute. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utime Tom Williams. We have another 10 minutes left with uh, Ari Burillo. His latest book is The Backwoods of Everywhere, Words from a lo- Wandering Local. It's out from Torrey House Press. A couple of events to mention. Friday, this Friday, 7.30 p.m. at the Book Bungalow in St. George. Ari Burillo will be uh, headlining that event. And uh, then the following week, Saturday, July 30th, 7.30 p.m. at the Robber's Roost in Torrey, presented by Entrada Institute. They'll reschedule that event at Kent Sanders at the Leonardo uh when uh, i guess when Covid gets a little more manageable and I hope that'll be soon um so ari Brillo, um I'll, I'll let me just have you tell this just in brief we'll we'll encourage people to go to the book and read the, this pulse pounding and count your <laughs> your encounter with a mountain lion this is i mean you know no matter where you grow up or, or what you're doing um that doesn't happen to many people you talked about we talked about initiation rituals this isn't a ritual but it is kind of a searing experience Uh, tell us about this in in brief and then what it what it did to you
1: well yeah so i uh i'll try to keep it concise i know we're down to about 10 minutes but i was so speaking of living you know living and working seasonally Uh, I was in Big Bend National Park. I was still a restaurant employee at the time. I was a server. And there was a community event, so all of the the seasonal workers for both the the concessionaire and the park service were together at this community center um, down, somewhat ironically, in a place called Panther Junction. And, you know, and there was a big dance, and there was uh, was a, a... girl that i was interested in and she wandered off with someone else and i got frustrated and borrowed my roommate's girlfriend's car to just drive back to the dormitories and she said yeah sure that's fine we're going to stay here and have fun you go be grumpy and i drove back and it was the you know where panther junction splits off and heads up to the chisos mountains where the employee uh housing is there was a, a deer that scrambled in front of me and i I slowed down considerably, and I was like, oh, I almost hit the deer. And then right behind it, this enormous, the first mountain lion I'd ever seen in my life, that's easily from, tail, from nose to tail longer than the car, uh, I bumped it with her car. And it sort of scrambled off into the dark. And, and you know, afterwards, I, I, I'm sitting there, and my heart's pounding, and I think but for some reason I thought maybe this – this, I guess, is the best time to get out and make sure that it didn't damage the car. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, those thoughts that run through your head when, when, you're, when your heart's pounding and you're just you're not thinking straight. And so I got out, and I went to the front of the car to look, and I didn't see any damage or anything. You know, I turned and looked, and the cat had come back. Mm. At the time, I thought it came back to kill me. Um, in retrospect, it was probably just curious. It wanted to know, you know, what the heck had just happened to it. But there it was, just feet away from me, staring straight at me. And, you know, within a few minutes, uh, some of the other employees, um, folks that worked in the kitchen, came up over the hill and, you know, blaring their music and came up on us, and the cat just sort of disappeared. And I just, for years, this was in 2002, this occurred. And so now it's 20 years later, and still I think, well, what if that car hadn't come? What, you know, what would have happened next? Um, But as a follow-up to that, curiously enough, uh, when I was living in Salt Lake City, I went out to uh, I did some you know I, one of my rituals is I, I there are some some destinations I like to go night hiking. And one of them is the hot springs down there and you know outside of Spanish Fork. And I was out there. Uh, this was 2018, and I got followed. Actually, the entire way, hiking from the 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 parking area out to the hot springs. By by a cat, by a, again a, a it was rather large mountain lion, and uh, and this I think at that point that made it my sixth encounter with those things. So now at this point I just kind of consider them part of the part of this community that I've found here in the Southwest. But boy, was it a shock with the first time I saw one.
0: Mm. Oh, that's amazing. That's, uh, yeah. And you're, 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 in fact, when you encounter the, the mountain lion out there on that road, you're, you're crouched down cause you're checking the front of the car, right? And, yeah. and so your, your eyes are kind of level with the, with the mountain lion. Um, and your calculation is, it's going to take me several seconds to, you know, run to the side of the car, get in. And, and by that time the, 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 the uh, mountain lion could have attacked you. Um, and 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 I guess through your mind is uh, make yourself big, right? Kind of a thing, but you're crouched down, but you're paralyzed, which I think most of us would have been.
1: Well, and on top of that, you know, being uh, so to speak a newbie in the Southwest at that time, you know, having never encountered, uh, never encountered that kind of creature. I also never sat through any like uh, ranger-led training sessions or anything. Here's how you react to a grizzly bear. Uh, you know, that I had up in Glacier National Park. But I, nobody had ever really told me how to behave around a giant cat. I grew up with cats. You know, I have two cats to this day, a pair of Siamese devils. And, uh, you know, I had no idea. I think I would have just sat there frozen until either it decided what happened or, again, another car came on. Uh, but I, I really had no idea how to respond and I, even to this day, I've heard varying accounts. Like, oh, look, you big, big fight back and whatever, or you know, don't put up a fight; it'll get bored. Experts seem to go, you know, go round and round about that.
0: What, what? Now, having had uh, not encounters, maybe, but you said six experiences. What, what's your advice uh, for? To... Um,
1: uh, my well, uh, based on my own encounters, um, there were a few when I was uh, doing archaeological survey for a company there in Salt Lake City and just a number of them that I've encountered just out hiking where I just turn and oh there's a mountain lion like it was hiding under uh, in Sedona Arizona one was hiding from the rain under a tree I made a beeline for the same tree to get away from the, the rain and didn't realize it was there and it saw me jumped up and ran the other way um, they know you're there that's I guess the, the the best piece of advice I could give is if you see one it knows you're there. So it's totally aware of you. So if it hasn't attacked you, that means it probably won't or it isn't going to. They are absolutely aware of your presence. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas a grizzly bear, like, they're bigger and lumbering and they're loud. Like, you can totally surprise a grizzly bear. And that's when, like, when they respond to that surprise, that's when they they freak out and they start swiping their paws. But it's extremely unlikely that a mountain lion isn't already 100% aware of you. So act on that knowledge, Mm -hmm. you know, act like it knows you're there. It's already decided what it's going to do. And if you're alive, you're probably going to be alive in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, Finally, uh, just a couple minutes left, but I I was struck by this. This is, uh, this is in the afterward uh, near the end of the book. Um, You're, you've done a lot of writing about Bears Ears, right? You know, some scholarship and, uh, you, you say it I uh, enjoyed this you say you you know you, you have the scientific and then you have the public facing and your training uh, kind of ingrains you in the in the scientific side um, so your friends in certain reports say you need to make a public version of this um, and you go on to say I'll just quote this public scholarship is a conservation imperative if people don't know what makes our public land so special they won't lift a finger to help protect them but it's also a delicate balancing act give the public too much information and those places turn into Disneyland. So I wonder if you just very briefly t- talk about that, that balancing act.
1: Yeah, it's it's a nearly impossible one to get right. But I think we need to, we need to keep trying. Because uh, on the one hand, and I'll just... Uh, it, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Um, but uh, David Roberts, Lately Departed, who... Wrote and published a a book called In Search of the Old Ones about Cedar Mesa, um, really put it on the map. And when I met the man, you know, 20 years after that happened, he had a lot of regrets about that. Um, I know that Edward Abbey's been given a lot of crap for, you know, publishing books that say Arches is so cool because nobody's here. And then suddenly a bunch of people are there. Um, And whether there's a one to one correlation, uh, it's debatable. But, you know, the bottom line is, especially when you're talking about things that fall into the scientific realm, uh, and more especially when you're talking about, you know, precious and irreplaceable resources like archaeological sites, um, when you make them a, a, a product of study, you're understanding that for both ethical and, frankly, legal reasons, this is protected information. And I like if I was to go to the public, if I was to stand in front of a group of people and say, if you go five miles up this one canyon and then climb up this cliff and right here, you're going to find this incredible cliff dwelling. I I, I literally I'd get arrested because I am, you know, as a permitted researcher, I have access to information like that, that, you know, uh, it's it's a felony to share it. And it should be. It absolutely should be. Um, for reasons of, of history and science, and, of course, for reasons of uh, respect for the descendant communities. These things, this it needs to be protected. But at the same time, if, uh, to quote myself again, if if nobody knows what's there worth protecting, they won't lift a finger to protect it. So you've got to find a way to get people this information without handing them a treasure map. And it's, boy, it's tough. It's real tough. One of the first... Um, Uh, frankly, compliments that I got from uh, publication of the Bears Ears book was uh, from a friend and colleague of mine who actually appears in both of them said, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm happy to see that you wrote a book about the Bears Ears area that that didn't include any photos. That didn't include, you know, because so many of them, uh, again, Robert's books, a good example that, you know, you flip the page, and here's this pretty vista, and then here's a cliff dwelling, and here's a pot that he found, and here's another vista. And, uh, you know, because it was really important for me to convey the information so people understand this place has a deep, rich history. It's absolutely worth protecting. It's worth loving. Uh, but not, you know, go here, X marks the spot. And I don't know if I did it right. I don't know if anybody does it right. It's Boy, it's it's... It's hard. It's really hard to find that balance, where you're giving people enough information so that they know that these places deserve the respect and the protection that we're trying to get for them, uh, but without, as I said, giving them a treasure map and, and condemning and dooming these places to destruction.
0: Well, uh, we appreciate you doing, the, doing that work, that balancing act. Um, and uh, uh, congratulations on the book. And that is out now, The Backwoods of Everywhere. The author is Ari Burillo. Uh, Friday, 7.30 p.m., the book, Bungalow in St. George. You can interact with uh, Ari Burillo. And then Saturday, July 30th, Robber's Roost in Torrey, presented by Entrada Institute. Ari Burillo, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. You You have a great day.
0: You too. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.
2: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. In 1922, Utah joined the Colorado River Compact as arid western states started to scramble for equal access to the waters of the Colorado River. But taming nature with this legal agreement did not come naturally. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1922, seven states in the American West, including Utah, signed the Colorado River Compact to determine how to distribute among them the waters of the Colorado River. This agreement proved to be more controversial than expected and left us with a mixed legacy. The first issue was the water itself. Compact signatories agreed to split the Colorado using an estimated annual water flow of 17.5 million acre-feet, divided somewhat evenly across the upper and lower basin states. But this estimate was made by the U.S. Reclamation Service during a period when the river raged higher than at any point in its recorded history. Using overly optimistic estimates to establish basin allotments led to disputes that affect us today. Second, the process of actually ratifying the compact was difficult. Some states, such as Utah, signed the agreement right away, but Arizona and California couldn't agree how to divide water grant to the lower basin. For six years, the compact languished until the U.S. Congress intervened with the 1928 Boulder Canyon Project Act. It sought to settle the feud between Arizona and California and make the compact legally binding. The act authorized a revolutionary project known as Hoover Dam, which created the Lake Mead Reservoir. At that point, Hoover Dam was the largest on Earth and its hydroelectric power spurred population growth, built industry, attracted tourism, and provided air conditioning in one of America's most inhospitable environments. Still, Arizona did not officially sign the compact until 1944, yet as Utah and neighboring states watched tremendous growth driven by the Hoover Dam, they saw a model for what would become controversial reclamation projects in the upper basin. Aside from interstate squabbles, the Colorado River Compact had at least one more troubling aspect. The 1922 Commission excluded key users of the river. Native American tribes in Mexico did not have seats at the table. After years of conflict, an international agreement in 1944 reserved 1. 1.5 million acre-feet of Colorado River for Mexico. But tribes are still negotiating for their rights to the water. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah State Archives. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.